Guys, welcome, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. There's a story um, about a small town uh, in America, and it was a dry, a dry town. There was no alcohol in the town, um, not by law, but uh, that's just the way it had been kind of run. And some people turned up, and they opened up a bar. And they opened this bar, and, and the, it became really successful. Like, a bunch of guys started hanging out there, and then, like, the other people would start going there, and then the young guys would go there, and it became really, really successful, and the people of the town were like, this isn't, this isn't what we're about. So the, a church in this town began to pray into this, and they begin to be struck by this idea, we, we want to pray that this bar is struck by lightning. So they start to pray that this bar would be struck by lightning, and it was. This bar was struck by lightning and kind of burnt to the ground. But the owners of the bar had heard about this church praying for them. So they took them to court. And they took them to court saying, you as a church caused our bar to burn down through your prayers. And when he got to court, the church said, uh, no, 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 we, we did pray um, but we didn't think anything would happen. <laughs> this is an act of, of God. Uh, and the bar said, no, 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 you were serious as you prayed. No, 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 we weren't, they were, we weren't serious about this. And the judge said, okay, so let me get this right. We have some bar owners who are not connected to the church who believe um, that prayer is serious. And we have some church leaders who believe that prayer is not serious. <laughs> we are in a series of going, Jesus, are you, are you serious? What if Jesus was serious with the things that he said and that he offered? And Adrian mentioned this last week. This line, you cannot be serious, comes from an iconic tennis moment in the 80s where John McEnroe, in fury, a line call going against him went, you cannot be serious. So look at the stories of Jesus. I'm often stirred to the same thoughts. Blessed are the meek. Rejoice and be glad when people insult you. I mean, I get plenty of practice, but that doesn't mean... Uh, that I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. These and many others, I want to cry out, you, you cannot be serious about this. But I think Jesus was being serious. In a series we're going into, looking at a number of parables in the life of Jesus based around what if Jesus was serious? And last week we looked at um, the shrewd manager. Does he just want to be shrewd? Is he serious about that? I think it would be really easy to look at the teachings of Jesus and think that whilst his vision was perfection, he knew that what we were really like. And actually what he really hoped for was to try a bit harder and play a bit nicer. And so that was kind of the ultimate expression of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. But what if Jesus was serious about the things he taught? 
that he expected the worst of society to be at his feasts. That he didn't simply want us to accumulate more and more. That our love and devotion was to be cast way wider than we ever thought. I wonder if we look and relook at some famous stories, can we prepare, be prepared for Jesus to be serious on these things? You know, Jesus tells parables for many reasons, but one of the key is, is to, that it reveals the heart of the listener. Is the response we have to some of these stories a bit trite, a bit overcomplicated, a bit culture-led? I was really challenged by someone recently who said the danger is that our heartbeat becomes so in step with the times and our culture that we forget what the heartbeat of Jesus was. Our culture tells us, make things equal, promote fairness. And we say, absolutely, as Christians, we should do this. But Jesus tells us to go beyond this, to make the last first. To not lift people to where we are, but to lift them above ourselves. And I wonder where we get sucked into a human worldview rather than a Jesus one. Because the view of Jesus was radical, earth-shattering, and completely out of this world, yet for this world. I'm reminded of the quote by Dorothy Sayers that says this, The people who hanged Christ never, to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It's been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. What have we done to Jesus in our not taking it serious? What have we done to this person? If you have a Bible with you, I'd love you to turn to Luke uh, chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, it's going to come up on the screen. This is one of the uh, biographies of Jesus that we find, one of the uh, accounts written of Jesus' life. And this, in sort of church circles, is quite a famous story. It's, it's not often known as the rich ruler or the, the rich young ruler. And in verse 18, it starts with this. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said to him, we have left all we have to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. In this, we see this kind of short, there's a story of someone coming to, to Jesus. 
And we see this short parable where he offers something around the, the eye of a needle. And we'll talk about that uh, later and what that means. But as we do, why don't we just open in prayer? Lord, we are aware of our need for you. I pray, Lord, that you would just reveal your heart to us. Let us not be stubborn. Let us not be distracted. Let us not be far from you. Let us draw close to what you're saying. Lord, by your spirit, would you bring your touch to us, we pray. Amen. The entirety of this passage, I think, hinges on one sentence. It says this, you still lack one thing. Imagine that. To someone incredibly rich to say you lack, it's something they don't comprehend. But you still lack one thing. Sell all you have, give it away, and come follow me. And this passage can be summed up then by saying, there is something between us and God. Are we prepared to lay it down? to give it away, to throw it away, that we might follow Jesus. To which I want to reply, uh, Jesus, are you serious? You know, we nod along in church because it's the right thing to do. But we go out of these doors and go, I'm, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. And this is exactly what this young man has to say as well. Notice, he already knows that Jesus is good. And when Jesus equates the goodness to being God, he knows this. And he already knows who Jesus is and he clearly believes in him. But he won't follow him. What an incredible message for our time. Yes, Jesus, I believe in you, uh, but I prefer things not to be changed. Or not too much, or perhaps not in this area. I believe in you, but I want to date who I want to date. Even though I know it's not good for me. Or I know you're good, but I want to do this job knowing that it's corrupt or broken or not helpful. Jesus, you are the saviour, but I'll fix this situation myself. You care about responsible stewardship of my money, my body, my career. But I think in a hundred different ways we find ourselves saying, Jesus, you, you can't be serious. And in doing so, we relegate Jesus to the protagonist of a fanciful ideology and make ourselves the kings and queens of our own world. So it begs the question, what was Jesus being serious about? What was Jesus being serious about? Well, he makes this point. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And this is the illustration that he lays down alongside a story that's happening. Um, you know, parables are, it, it, the literal um, Greek is, is para alongside and bole, which is to throw. So it's literally to throw something alongside as to explain it. And, you know, we see this sometimes in culture. Like one of the examples I love, Charles Dickens, if any of you know, I'm an English uh, major geek. So I liked Dickens. And he wrote a book called The Christmas Carol. Some of you might have seen it. The Muppets Christmas Carol, I would highly recommend. is a great movie. Uh, but it's this story where this uh, mean guy called Scrooge um, takes money from people in horrible ways. But he's visited on Christmas Eve by three ghosts. Um, and they convince him to change his ways. And this was kind of a parable of sorts, because no one got visited by any ghosts. 
But it was laid down in the midst of, the, of this cultural milieu as a story to shape people's hearts and minds around the conditions for the poor. That's what he was doing through this story. And this is what Jesus is doing, kind of laying something down to kind of shape our hearts. And as with all parables, kind of like, what is it pointing to? What's the story behind? What is it really getting at? The thing explained here is not that wealth is bad. Please hear me on that. This is not about wealth being bad, but that a distracted heart will kill you. This is a parable that is at once about money and at the same time, or a story, sorry, about money and at the same time absolutely nothing to do with money. This is about the heart. Jesus isn't offering moral behavior modification. He's offering heart surgery. The takeaway from the story is not go and give away everything you have. In this instance, money was the distraction to the heart, but the question is not how to give away what we have, but rather what is the thing that's getting in the way of you and Jesus. It might be wealth. If it is, give it away. It might be a relationship. It might be you fill in the blank. As we look at this, I think that this is a simple but deeply complex problem. Namely, that worry is not meant to shape our life. It's interesting. In the Bible, the most often repeated commandment in the Bible, by the Bible, is do not be afraid. Jesus uses this exact phrase ten times and spends the largest devoted section in the Sermon on the Mount saying, do not worry. And the Bible, dozens of other times, talks about not being afraid, not worrying. And I think this appears because we have a human tendency to worry. And I think the question that plagued this young man 2,000 years ago plagues us now. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In the Greek, the sense of this eternal is not about uh, a quantity in eternal. It's more about quality. So there's this sense that this is about what must I do to inherit a quality of life. It's the question of how do I make sense of life? find fullness of it and see all it's meant to be. I'll put it another way. I am worried that what I'm doing is not adding up. And I would argue that this pursuit is not a Christian thing. This is a human thing. The desire for life and purpose and meaning. But the search for the answers wreaked havoc on our souls. Fascinatingly, the man who quite literally carried the weight of the world on his shoulders and had the most incredible mission and purpose seems to have not been anxious. Jesus in the middle of the storm is the one they have to wake up. He's unfazed by 5,000 people turning up for lunch when only a small kid's meal was what they had kicking around. We never see him running anywhere. Not only does he stop on his way to dinner, but he stops on his way to heal the, the mortally sick. And he spends so much time eating that we sometimes worry, what was he doing with his time? Jesus seemed to live the life of a non-anxious presence. Yeah, I've got to be honest, this doesn't feel like me. Now, I know this is Jesus, so it begins to be an unfair comparison. But to be woken in a storm, when I'm kept awake by almost everything, 5,000 for dinner? 
I get panicky about not having enough coffee in church. But it goes beyond this. We live in this culture that's kind of perennially anxious. And we were talking as our, our teaching team uh, gathered and met yesterday, and the number one thing we reflected on in our church culture was around mental health. People's struggles with that that we see in our, widely in our generation. So what does Jesus propose? If Jesus is serious, what's he proposing? Well, firstly this. We must let go of control. This young man's obsession is what must I do? And for sure there are things that he is required to do, but the moment that this becomes the thing, about the thing that will cause him to lose control, he can't. Wealth was the thing that would keep him in control, that would keep him secure. And Jesus says, will you surrender that control? And he says, I, I can't. Why would I give away the very thing that causes me to be secure? Secondly, this. This is about followership. This vision of come, follow me. This is not just like follow on Facebook or social media where we kind of tick to like something. Jesus wasn't asking him to follow him so as to be aware of him, but to follow him in the sense of redressing the entirety of who he was. Not about us following as we are, but following so as to become who Jesus is. Thirdly, this is about a change in worldview. Give away your wealth. In a worldview like that, and in a worldview like ours, that sounds ridiculous. A worldview that desired great wealth, this must have seemed staggering for Jesus to simply dismiss this. And this wasn't because Jesus was against money. He was just against other gods. And he, he was against this man thinking he could do things on his own because he knew he couldn't. The point of this story is that the thing we really need for eternal life is God himself. There's a terrible story around this parable. Um, as, and, you know, we read it. It says, indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. There's an old story that says in Jerusalem, there's a really, really small gate called the eye of a needle. And that for a camel to get in there, he can't just walk through it. But he has to stoop down really low, get on its knees and kind of scrape its way in and force its way in. And eventually it gets through the eye and the needle and it's really hard. And this is the point. It's not true. It's not about what we can scrape through on our own. It's that it's impossible to do it on our own. That's the point that Jesus is making. Not that if you try even harder... Fascinating that even within our church thinking, we're hugely swayed by this, the culture at large. You know, following society's lead, the church's message in recent years has been how to live your best life. Follow your dreams. Learn how to live. We're so immersed in, in our moment, we can't see how non-biblical this is. The, idea of, the Bible idea isn't to learn to live. It's to learn to die. So we learn to die to ourselves that we might live in and through Jesus. And finally this, I think this is about learning to abide. Jesus makes the point that the Christian life is not one done at distance, not one done in learning rules, not one done on your own, but it's marked by abiding. 
by being, by being able to follow the master. I was talking with my spiritual director this week. I, I, I meet with her once a month and she said, you spend your life asking people questions about their faith and how their walk with Jesus is. You probably need someone to do the same to you. And she's right and she's brilliant. And she said this, ultimately very little of use is done that isn't about taking deep time to abide with the Father. What stuff, even potentially good stuff, is between us and abiding with God? What are the things that so easily take us away from that abiding? You know, we talk a lot about work being a part of our worship, and that's true and right. But what about when it becomes the thing that we worship? What about when the goal or accomplishment, rather than being ways to praise God, become God's in and of themselves? Identity ultimately begins with surrender in every sphere of our lives. Mark Sayers notes that our goal is not self-actualization or self-expression, but our goal is life with God. Guys, will you stand with me? We're going to... We're going to close and respond. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. This life of surrender is, you know, I think it's so prevalent. I was talking to someone even just this morning about, about this, and I think this is where so many of us are. And Christian life is one of surrender. And I'd love us just to pray for people this morning. Maybe you're sitting up. I just, I know, I know this is a thing I need to surrender. I'm trying to control it. I'm trying to, you know, use this, but I, need, I know I need to surrender this. And Jesus models this himself. He surrenders himself. And one of the things I've realized is that surrendering to God is not an event, but a lifestyle. I was asked to preach at an event recently, and uh, they interviewed me beforehand. And, and they said, so, Chris, when did you give your life to Jesus? Mm-hmm. And I was a little bit naughty, because I said to them, I said, I gave my life to Jesus this morning. And I think they were worried. Uh, they said, oh, dear, this guy is meant to be leading our talk, and he's only just given his life to Jesus. And I said, but if I'm honest, I see that as my daily challenge. I became a Christian when I was uh, just a young man. And the things I gave to Jesus then and surrendered to Jesus as I gave my life, I meant. They're very different to the things I have now. I'm still willing to surrender them. At the time I was in university and I wanted to surrender those things to Jesus again, but and now I have a job and a family and a marriage and, and concerns about the future. Do I surrender them as readily as I once did? Giving our life to Jesus, surrendering our life to Jesus is not an event. It's a lifestyle. Can I just ask our, our community group leaders and our, our leadership and our team just to, to get down the sides here because we want to we pray for people. Um, just, yeah, just start making your way to the sides, guys. We're going to, I'm just going to ask as we sing, for those of you who are in this space going, I, I know I need to surrender. 
we'd love to just stand with you in, in prayer. And as we sing, just feel free to walk up to them and yeah, and, and, and receive prayer. Lord, we ask, would you, would you give us supple hearts that we might surrender readily to you? Lord, help us not to try and control the narrative where it's not ours to control. Lord, help us to be a people that respond to you. So guys, as we sing, just come forward. If that's you, come and grab some prayer. Let's, let's be a people who, who surrender in, the, in ourselves and just pray to God.